Well, we're continuing in our series, The Hard Sayings of the Bible. And up until this point, the hard sayings we've dealt with have mostly had an apologetic bent. In other words, they are hard sayings in the Bible that people outside of the church use as sort of a, a cudgel, right? Like, well, I don't like that. Um, and maybe they use it as a reason to reject Christianity altogether or reject the church or, you know, there are some hard things in the Bible and we've, we've been traversing and talking about some of these hard sayings in the Bible. But this week's hard saying is one that may be just as hard for Christians to hear, and that's Jesus's tough words against divorce. I don't remember how old I was when I learned that both my mother and father had previous marriages and been divorced before they met each other. Um, my father even had a son from his first marriage, my older brother Michael. So this is not something theoretical for me. Um, it's touched my own family, and I'm sure divorce has touched many of your families as well. In fact, you may be here this morning as someone who is divorced. Uh, most marriages are pretty rocky and experience lots and lots of ups and downs. And for good reason, marriage is hard. And someone say amen. The Bible is filled with rocky marriages. <laughs> this to me is actually one of the like, reasons I know that this is not a man-made book. Because if it was, we would present like, we just put on like our best face, right? We would be far too image conscious, you know, to to put the stuff that's in the Bible that is in the Bible. And most of the marriages in the Bible are pretty rocky. You know, the very first marriage right out of the gate in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve play the blame game. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. The very next uh, couple, right, Abraham and Sarah, you may know the story a little bit about Abraham. You know, Abraham essentially allows his wife to be taken into a harem of a more powerful person because he's afraid he wants to save his own hide. You know, Sarah was beautiful and he's like, he says, no, she's my sister, right? There's some cowardice there. Um, Isaac and Rebecca each line up their favorite son for supremacy, who's gonna take over the sort of family, you know, blessing and business. And Abigail is married to a rich fool who almost, get them, almost gets them both killed. You may remember the story of Abigail and her husband Nabal, which means fool. David's wife, King David's wife, Michal, once loved him and, but grew over time to despise him. You remember the story, David praised and danced himself out of his robe and she sat, wherever she sat, maybe in the palace, viewing him with utter contempt, right? Jezebel urges Ahab into deeper idolatry than he already was committing. And Job's wife, who can forget Job's wife, that rock of encouragement, who said to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? So, if you've had a rough marriage, you're in good company. <laughs> I think that we think, for those of us that are married, or maybe have been married and maybe divorced, that it's just me. 
that everyone's marriage is like made in heaven and it, what's wrong with my marriage? But it's just not true. It's just a lie. Your marriage isn't perfect because no marriage is perfect. Not in a fallen world where we're all sinners. Not in a fallen world. No marriage is perfect. One scholar sardonically said, the defects in the marriages described in the Bible suggest that even if God designed marriage, certain individual units were forged closer to purgatory. That's supposed to be funny. No wonder divorce is common. And in every marriage, there are challenges, right? Couples endure boredom, suffer evil at one another's hand, commit sins against one another. And someone once wisely observed that only fools rush in to marriage. A couple years back, I shared with you the pain of watching my son go through a divorce. Maribel and I wept for months. I cannot tell you the pain, the, the heart-wrenching pain of watching my son go through a divorce. <clears throat> we, uh, we have pictures of that wedding that I don't know what to do with. And sometimes I look at them and I just weep and cry. So my compassion for divorced people has grown exponentially. And it has even challenged how I communicate as a pastor and a preacher, even how I sort of carry along my theology about marriage and divorce. Again, this isn't something theoretical for me. The reality is that about half of all marriages end in divorce. Now, I'd like to believe that affects Christians in less and fewer numbers than that, but I just don't know for certain. Part of me wants to say that can't be true for Christians. It can't be true that 50% of all Christian marriages end in divorce, can it? But I just don't know. I don't have all the data. <clears throat> the reality is that marriage is not just tough now, it has always been tough. And no wonder the Pharisees ask the question in Matthew 19, when is it lawful to get a divorce? Many people ask the same question today. Perhaps there have been times in your marriage when it got so bad that you wondered the same thing. The context for the Pharisees' question Matthew tells us is discipleship. Jesus had been teaching people and it says that he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. You know what, let's, let's put the verse up on the screen there in Matthew 19, three through nine. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees were always trying to put Jesus to the test. So sure, there was an ongoing debate over the domestic issue of marriage. To say it another way, what they were essentially asking is, is it lawful to divorce a wife on any pretext whatsoever? Now, historically, laws had to be erected to protect women who suffered from divorce more than men. And if it weren't today for laws that divide marital assets, many women would be left destitute at least financially, and some of you, we have some stay-at-home moms who homeschool and do things like that, and you do not earn an income. Maybe your husband is the breadwinner, and if he walked out on you, you would hope and pray that there were some laws that were protecting you, because that happens, and historically, it has happened. In Deuteronomy, the law of Moses said that if a man divorced his wife because his wife did something indecent or shameful, he had to give her a writing of divorce so that she could remarry. And he could never remarry her. And it was meant to discourage, now pay attention here, hasty divorces. It was meant to discourage hasty divorces. In other words, if you put this woman away, you must give her a writing of divorce, a, essentially a bill of divorce, saying that she is now free. And the law of Moses said, and you can never remarry her again. In other words, divorce this woman, and she's gone forever. Some of you women feel like, yeah. But over the centuries, hard-hearted men took advantage of the law's ambiguity. You say, what do you mean ambiguity? Well, the law of Moses said, if a wife does something indecent or shameful, now that seems ambigu ambiguous to us, and it was ambiguous to people, you know, living back at that time as well. If a, law, if a wife does something indecent or shameful, well, who's to say what's indecent or shameful? So rabbis and teachers and interpreters over the centuries sort of expanded that to mean to be very broad. In other words, a husband could say, well, she's behaved indecently. She burnt my meal. Three times this week, she's gone. And so there were debates. Different rabbis over the centuries said, look, this is speaking of sexual sin, adultery. And others said, no, 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 it's, no it, means, it can mean anything. And some rabbis, in fact, one rabbi uh, in the third century before Christ uh, said essentially that if your wife ceased to be pretty to you, you didn't like her looks anymore, you could divorce her. And this is three centuries before Jesus. This is about 2,300 years ago. What a rascal. <laughs> but they took advantage of the ambiguity of Scripture. And to be honest with you, I'd like to say that was them, but we, we don't do that. But the truth is we do that too, don't we? We take advantage of places in the Bible that are not as clear as we would like them to be because of our sinful, wicked hearts, 
right? God is sanctifying us, but we're not perfect yet. We have not been perfected yet. And so even, yes, us Christians take advantage of different passages of Scripture sometimes that are not super clear or feel ambiguous. Now, why does all of this, all of this matter? Why is it significant? Were the Pharisees simply concerned with these domestic matters for their own sake? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus. And the way they were trying to trap Jesus with this question, and this is important for us to deal with this hard saying, because the hard saying is essentially whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That's the hard saying. Maybe I should have said that up front. That's the hard saying. Whoever divorces and marries another commits adultery. And that's hard because I have friends who are divorced and remarried. So we have to deal with this. We have to deal with the context. We have to talk about it. Because on the surface, it just seems like a plain statement that would essentially define many church-going Christians as adulterers because they've remarried. So here's the context. Let me unpack the context a little bit, okay? They're trying to trap Jesus. They know there's a debate going on, and they also realize that Herod, who was the king of Israel at the time of Jesus, and his family were known to divorce freely with no regard to Moses' law. And if a person spoke out against Herod, they could be killed, right? They're trying to trap Jesus. The Pharisees don't like Jesus. They would love for Jesus to incriminate himself and say something that would get him killed so that they don't have to do it. <clears throat> you say, well, how do you know this? How do you know Herod would have done this? Well, if you know the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded because he spoke out against Herod Antipas's marriage to Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. They were sort of passing wives around, marrying, divorcing, and remarrying frivolously. Cavalier attitude towards marriage. And this is the context. And the Pharisees come up to him, they test him, they say, is it lawful to divorce for any cause? And he answered, and I'll put the verse back up on the screen again here. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, number one, said, therefore a man shall leave his father and, and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, number two, so that they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Number three, just quickly, I want to make three quick observations here, okay? In God's perfect plan for marriage, marriage is... Heterosexual, one man and one woman from creation. Anatomically, that bears that out. You can use your imagination for a moment. We are made that way as men and women, sort of one come together, right? Man and woman from creation, that's sort of self-explanatory. Number two, a husband and wife are no longer two but one flesh. And this may sound like sexual intimacy, but it's more than that. The idea of the two becoming one flesh 
is the giving of each person to each other in a lifelong pledge of loyalty. And it's that pledge of oneness that creates safety for sexual oneness. Which means the sexual union of a man and a woman takes place within the safety of their pledge and commitment to one another. That's the idea of the two becoming one. They become one physically because they have become one spiritually, emotionally, and mentally because they have made that pledge to one another. It's interesting, this is sort of a sidebar discussion, but it's interesting that you know the very first thing that Adam and Eve recognize when they sin in the garden is their shame to be naked. And the one place where it is not shameful for people to be naked in front of each other is in marriage. Isn't that beautiful? That pledge of commitment, that there is safety to be naked and unashamed with this person. And then third, God's perfect plan for marriage is a permanent and exclusive covenant commitment or union. And that's what it means when it says, let what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, when the Pharisees heard this all, they said to Jesus, here's their retort and rebuttal, because they knew something about the Bible also. They knew something about the law of Moses themselves. And they said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now you read that and you think, wow, that does not leave much path for escape from marriage, does it? Not much of an escape route there. As I mentioned a minute ago, there are divorced and remarried men in the church. What about them? Are they under God's judgment? Is a person who has divorced and remarried an adulterer? Well, all along in this series, we've said context is, context is king. And so understanding about the context will help us to discern this tough saying. In our modern society, we have something called no-fault divorce. And here's what that means. I think it started in the late 60s, maybe the early 60s. There's a book that talks all about this called The Sexual State. But essentially, no-fault divorce is the idea that the state will side with the person in the marriage who wants the marriage the least. So one person may say, I don't want a divorce. And the other person says, well, I do. And the state says, we're going to side with this person. And so in our age of no-fault divorce, the state will side with whoever wants the marriage the least. And today, this is how our culture has changed over the centuries, women divorce men as easily as men divorced women. So now it's both, right? It's not just men who walk out on their wives. Women walk out on their husbands all the time. But that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Context, okay? That was not the case in Jesus' day. Men had all the power. 
and Jesus says something extreme to get the attention of men whose hearts were hardened by centuries of abusing women. Jesus says something extreme. It is the equivalent of a verbal smack across the face or you know, a bucket of cold water in the face. Jesus is trying to get their attention from men who he knows are looking for a reason or an excuse to divorce their wives frivolously and remarry. And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, you'd think that the disciples would hear this and say, yeah, Jesus, get them. But that's not what the disciples say. What the disciples say a few verses later is, well, Jesus, if this is the case, it's better not to marry at all. They're, they're sort of pressed in by Jesus' words to the Pharisees as well. They like the idea that they can sort of divorce and be free to remarry, and they're not crazy about what Jesus just said. And they logically come to the conclusion, it's probably better not to get married at all then. <clears throat> now, other parts of the Bible make it clear that those who suffer adultery, desertion, and violence have a right to divorce. Some of you may be familiar with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul sort of expands on this idea of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And it's my policy to say that, well, not that, well, we should listen to Jesus when there's a conflict. That's, that's a bad way to read the Bible. My approach to the Bible, and I think if you are a follower of Christ, the right approach to the Bible is to say that all scripture is God-breathed which means what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as what Jesus says in Matthew. And so there is a need, from my perspective, as a pastor, to harmonize these things and recognize that Jesus is not making an exhaustive treatment of the complexities of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He is speaking a very sharp word to rebellious, stiff-necked people like the Pharisees, who are prone to cavalier divorce, frivolous divorce. That's what Jesus is prohibiting, frivolous divorce. And so those who enter into marriage without this sort of respect for the sacred bond that marriage is supposed to be and think to themselves, well, the moment something gets tough, I'm just going to go find myself a new wife. Jesus is saying to that person, you are an adulterer. That is your attitude. If your attitude towards marriage is so cavalier and so frivolous that you would marry a woman, violate her sexually, divorce her, and move on to the next woman, that's adultery. The kind that you see in like Hollywood celebrities, if I can just put it that way, right? Get married and six weeks later they're divorced. Elizabeth Taylor was married seven times. Mickey Rooney, eight times. Zsa, Zsa Gabor was married nine times. So from my theological training and perspective as a pastor, I think those are the people Jesus are talking, is talking to. The people who 
would switch and swap out marriages like changing underwear. And Jesus says, frivolous divorce is adultery. Now, this isn't idiosyncratic to me. This isn't just like my reading of the text. I've consulted scholars over the past week. I've read the commentaries. I've looked at different arguments. And there's some variance. But essentially, the recognition is that this is what Jesus is really getting at. Frivolous divorce. Frivolous divorce is adultery. Because it mocks the sacred bond of marriage and it discards someone after they've been used to gain sexual gratification. It is essentially a sexual violation of a person to marry them, become one with them, and then throw it all away because your mood changed or because you became bored or saw someone cuter or prettier or more handsome or whatever. What Jesus essentially does is to force us to reconsider how we enter into marriage. And if you're married today and you did not enter into marriage with that idea, you, Jesus wants to correct us, our hearts, and say, this is what marriage is. Marriage is meant to be this. It is not meant to be something trivial or frivolous. Jesus forces us to reconsider how we enter into marriage. And if we cannot enter into marriage with a resolve to be faithful to the end, yes, it is very not, better not to marry at all. Jesus essentially takes their objection, the objection of the disciples, well, Jesus, it's better not to marry at all, and he says to them, yeah, you might be right. It might be better not to marry at all than to go into a marriage not committed. Now, What about those who are single? I just said a minute ago that the context was discipleship. If you're single, how you live in the sight of God is also discipleship. Your chastity, your celibacy is a sacrificial offering to God in the same way that the, marriage, the married person's commitment to their marriage is. Now, I got married at 17, and although I deeply loved my wife, Maribel, and I still do, we've been married 30 years, a 17-year-old does not have the intellect or wisdom to know what marriage is all about. And over the last 30 years, I have to tell you, it's been nothing but roses and sweetness. Actually, it's been very hard. And marriage, our marriage still at times is very hard. But through the difficulties of my marriage, I have learned Christ in a way that I otherwise would not. And God calls us to move toward our partners in forgiveness, mercy, grace, reconciliation, understanding, compassion, in the same way that he moves towards us in those ways. Now, I realize that some of you here or watching have had failed marriages. And I want to encourage you this morning, encourage us all, to make this statement, uh, we all fail at marriage. Every one of us falls short of God's standards for marriage. That's the truth. 
But each of our failings are under the blood of Jesus' cross. That's what I want you to hear this morning, okay? I want you to take this away, okay? All of our failings, those of us who are married, those of us who have never been married, and those of us who have, have had failed marriages, all of our failings are under the blood of Jesus' cross. Jesus not only forgives, but gives grace to each one of us to live daily in that grace. And we must live in that grace knowing that nothing that we do, whether it's in our marriage or in our parenting or living as a single person, is in our own strength. We live, we move, we have our being in him who forgives us and gives us his grace every single day to live before him. So if you're a person who sort of is living with the long pain and shadow of a past divorce, I want to say to you that the gospel is a promise of grace and forgiveness to you as much as it is to anyone else. And you have to live grabbing a hold of the promises of God that in Christ we are forgiven and made whole and renewed. And it doesn't mean that that past failure disappears, right? We have scars in our hearts, emotional scars. Do not hear me say, so if you get a divorce, it's no big deal because, well, the grace of Jesus forgives you. (laughs) You should not take that away from what I've talked about so far this morning. But the truth is, that in this fallen world, we fail sometimes. And as much as it pains me to say, sometimes Christians get divorced. We have this promise from God. So let's shift for a moment from our own lives and marriages or failed divorces to God's promise to us. Hosea 2 and 19. Look at what God says to his people. He said it to ancient Israel and he says it to us today because we are God's people as well. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. If you don't know what the word betroth means, it was a a word that represented marital commitment. It could mean sort of engagement, but it extended through to marriage. And essentially, God pledges to his people that he will never leave us, that he will never abandon us, he'll never divorce us. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that comforting to know that the promises of the gospel is that God's covenant faithfulness to us endure forever? God's persevering grace will never let us go. If you're a Christian, you're part of the bride of Christ, and that union will never be broken. Hallelujah. If you haven't given your life to Christ, Jesus stands this morning in all his resurrection power ready to save you and make you a part of his bride and call you his own. And all you have to do is trust that he is who he says he is, which is a faithful husband. Believe and obey from this day forward. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you, O God, for the covenant faithfulness that you promised to us, never to leave us, forsake us, abandon us for another. That you have betrothed us, your people, as a bride and promised to be faithful to us in justice, love, and steadfast mercy. Father, comfort the hearts of those who have had failed marriages to know, O God, that even our failings are under the blood of the cross and that Jesus died, yes, even for the divorced person. For those of us, O God, who are married, help us and encourage us to recognize that the failures in our marriage, Lord, uh, that we are not alone in that. That marriage is hard, but yet we look to you, we seek you, O God, for strength and for help, because we know, O God, the one who can help us and strengthen us, and so help us not to live in our own strength every day, but rather in our weakness to recognize that your strength is made perfect. Father, we thank you now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.